Uh, as Don mentioned, um, yesterday was Truth and Reconciliation Day that our nation has set aside to, to honor First Nations peoples and to um, just to think about and reflect on some of the actions that uh, our nation ha- has done over the generations. Um, I don't want to so much speak on it, but I do want to offer a prayer um, with us and for us today as we reflect on that. So would you um, enter into prayer with me? Father God, you are the creator of all things, including the earth, including the lands upon which we live. You call us to live in peace, not only with the land, but with each other. And we acknowledge that your people, the church, have often failed to do that. We acknowledge that the church, in the name of Jesus, have in fact often mistreated the indigenous peoples who lived upon this land before us. We acknowledge that your church often failed to act with the justice and mercy to which we are called. And so we grieve that the name of Jesus was used to abuse so many indigenous children, including in the residential schools in Canada. And we grieve the many lasting destructive effects that colonialization and deculturalization have had on First Nations peoples. We repent of our part in what has been done, the wrongs, whether through our actions or more often than not our inactions and even our ignorance. But we pray for healing. We pray for truth. We pray for reconciliation. We pray for wisdom and sensitivity for your church to know how to practice true hospitality and to bear the name of Jesus faithfully to all peoples in loving and sensitive ways. In the true and strong name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Our text today, our main text today, is uh, Matthew chapter 28, 16 to 20, as Claire read out for us so beautifully. Now, I chose that text and this theme long before I realized that this weekend is Truth and Reconciliation Weekend. But I imagine that this text, the Great Commission, as it's known, must have been at the heart of many of the missionary schools and ministries and even churches where some of those abuses took place. And that I'm speaking on it, I feel, is kind of a strange coincidence. On the one hand, it's, it's, it's quite humbling to remember that the misapplication of this text has probably, well, not probably, but has caused so much harm to so many people in history. But on the other hand, it's a reminder that the church is not about political correctness, and despite the wrongs and mistakes of the past, we still have a precious message to offer the world. And it is our responsibility and even our mandate, even our command, our mission to get that message out. And so we walk this line between obeying Jesus and trying to be sensitive and appropriate in the context in which we live so that we can lift up the positive aspects of the cultures of people around us and at the same time letting the truth of the gospel cleanse and sanctify all cultures uh, in, in which we live in the society in which, in which we live. Um, with that, I would like to read to you um, from the First Nations version of the Bible, 
uh, that main text that we're going to be speaking on today, um, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. So actually, I received this Bible um, last year for, as a gift from one of the First Nations um, communities, uh, from a pastor who's serving the, one of these First Nations communities in, in Nippo Lake, um, where uh, I did some volunteer work last year. And uh, if you've read this, this First Nations version of the Bible or the New Testament, it's really quite interesting because it uses different language and is couched in uh, a First Nations culture. So it's written from First Nations people to First Nations people. And there are some additions which make it a little bit more than just a translation. I feel like it's almost sometimes a paraphrase. But really, I think, helps us to appreciate some of the distinctives and the things that are really unique about First Nations peoples and culture. So let me just read to us from, first, uh, from Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 to 20. The remaining 11 of his followers journeyed to Circle of Nations, that is Galilee. There at the mountain where Creator sets free that is, Jesus, had told them to go, they met with him. When they saw him, they gave to him the honor he deserved. But there were still some who doubted. All the authority of the spirit world above and the earth below has been given to me, he told them. So now I am sending you into all nations to teach them how to walk the road with me. You will represent me as you perform the purification ceremony that is baptism with them, initiating them into the life of beauty and harmony represented in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You will teach them all the ways that I have instructed you to walk in. Creator sets free, that is Jesus, then looked into their faces with love and great affection. He lifted his hands toward them and spoke these final blessing words over them. Never forget, he said, as he began to rise up into the spirit world above. I will always be with you, your invisible guide, walking beside you until the new age has fully come. The word of the Lord. Um, yeah, published by InterVarsity Press. Um, very wonderful translation of the New Testament. Let me pray for us as we, as we look to God's word today. Father, we give you thanks for your word. We give you thanks for a variety of translations that capture different elements of your word and can speak to us today in fresh ways and new ways. And today, as we come to your word, we acknowledge that your word is powerful and true and is beyond and outside of ourselves. And so we are looking to you to speak a word of truth, a word in power and in authority, something that takes us beyond ourselves to the truth about who you are that can truly set free ourselves and this world in which we live. So open our ears and our minds and our hearts, and would you speak freely and with your authority today? In Jesus' name, amen. Today is a third of a three-part series where in these three weeks I've been talking about three of the most important lessons that I have learned and that inform me about how I want to carry about ministry. 
might consider three of my personal core values in Christian life as well as just in life generally. Today, I'd like to talk to you about what I believe is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. What is the ultimate goal of the Christian life? Now, that's pretty lofty words, isn't it? And they are, but I don't think this is an exaggeration. Uh, This is not just rhetoric. They're not just mere words, but the ultimate goal of the Christian life. And let me show you why. Because we're talking about discipleship to Jesus today. And if we take discipleship to Jesus away from some of the things that I've been talking about, the things that are core to Christian life, if we take it away from these other aspects, I want you to see and understand what happens. So we go back to this slide, uh, which I began with a few weeks ago. Three life lessons or five life lessons, perhaps, of things that I feel have been most important to me and that I'd like to speak out of as a pastor. So authenticity and truth. What do we have if we have authenticity and truth, but we do not have discipleship to Jesus? Authenticity without discipleship to Jesus. Well, one of the things that we can result in is simply, sincerely misguided people people who may be following their own agenda or perhaps some other agenda that is not true, that is not true to who Jesus is and not true to what God has given us in Revelation. So the danger is that people can be sincere, but they can be mistaken and misguided. And I think there's an illustration of this. I mean, the world is so full of different religious expressions. And there are aspects of truth to all religious expressions, I believe but they do not all lead to the same place. They do not even all say the same thing about the reality in which we live. And so what what can happen is if we live with sincerity and truth, with a small t, not a capital T, then without discipleship to Jesus, it's this danger of being misplaced truth or misplaced sincerity. Now, what do we have if we have the Bible but we don't have discipleship to Jesus. Well, I think one of the things is that we can end up being rigid and legalistic. And the illustration I think of comes straight from the New Testament. The people who knew the Bible the best, the Old Testament scriptures the best in the New Testament were the Pharisees, the scribes, the teachers of the law in that day. They literally knew the Old Testament forwards and backwards, memorizing, putting it in their hearts. And yet, they did not recognize Jesus. They didn't receive Jesus for who he was. So even scripture without discipleship to Jesus can leave us in a dangerous place. Jesus, in fact, has some of the harshest words. He reserves some of them for these people in the New Testament, in the Gospels, that they have led people astray. What do we have if we have community and love, but no discipleship to Jesus? Well, at best, I think we have a very close knit of people who support one another and love one another. But what can also happen if we do not have discipleship to Jesus? We can become insular. We become closed-minded and just inward-looking and exclusive and perhaps uh, become even a, a clique and exclusive of others. 
What do we have if we have evangel or the gospel and mission, but no discipleship to Jesus? Well, I think one of the consequences is that we can have people who call themselves Christians, who are believers, and yet have a very nominal faith. People who may not be committed to one another, who may not be committed to Jesus. And uh, we took a trip to Germany last year. This is the illustration that kind of sticks in my mind. And in Europe generally, but in Germany as well, there are these huge cathedrals that have been built over hundreds of years and hundreds of years ago. And many of these cathedrals today house very, very small congregations, if any congregations at all, just because society has become more and more secular. What do we have if we have the evangel and the gospel without discipleship? Well, we can, it can lead, I think, to one of, the, uh, one of the consequences is nominal faith. So discipleship, I repeat, is the ultimate goal of the Christian life. I don't think that's an exaggeration. Without it, everything else in the Christian life will lose its focus, will lose its foundation, will lose its center if we do not have discipleship to Jesus. Well, what is, what is the definition of uh, discipleship here? Um, here's a definition from dictionary.com. The condition or situation of being a disciple, a follower, or a student of some philosophy, especially a follower of Christ. That's not too bad, right? This is from a secular source, uh, disciple, follower of some philosophy. The thing that I find kind of peculiar about this is that it kind of it seems to equate Jesus with philosophy. Um, it doesn't quite acknowledge that Jesus is actually a person, but it seems that it... Uh, seems to equate Jesus Christ with some kind of a philosophy. So here's my definition that I like to, to work with today. The act of following our teacher and Lord, Jesus, and becoming more and more like him. The act of following our Lord and our teacher, Jesus, and becoming more and more like him. So... Uh, I want to do a couple things with you this morning. First, I want to look in depth at this passage, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, and especially to place it into the context of the whole gospel and narrative of the gospel of Matthew. Uh, second, I want to just touch on discipleship and growth, but I really kind of am bracketing that out this morning because I feel like that is actually a topic for another time, um, another sermon for another place, but I do want to touch on it briefly and then third, really, I want to look at and think about what does discipleship, what can it look like today for us in our context, in our time? Okay? So, we had this text read out to us two times, Matthew 28, 16 to 20. Let's talk about this text. Now, this text, Matthew 28, 16 to 20, comes at the very end of the Gospel of Matthew, and one of the beautiful things about our, our New Testament is that we have four different Gospels. And four different Gospels, actually, each of them takes a slightly different perspective and portrays to us who Jesus is from a slightly different vantage point. So Mark especially emphasizes the miracles and the power, the signs which Jesus works. Luke acts 
really focuses on the healing that Jesus works and the Holy Spirit that comes through him and then comes upon the church. The Gospel of John focuses especially on the person of who Jesus is in terms of his divinity, Christology, then also on the love that the church ought to live in response to Jesus. But in Matthew, in Matthew, there is a special heightened focus on discipleship and on teaching and on mission. Discipleship, teaching, and mission. And this, if this were some kind of a, a lecture, I could go into more detail and demonstrate how that's true, but you're just going to take my word for it this morning. There's this emphasis, a special emphasis on discipleship, teaching, and mission in the Gospel of Matthew. Now let's zoom in to our text. It's been referred to as the Great Commission, and appropriately so, because in Matthew, this text serves as the very climax of the gospel, the very end of the gospel. Here, this text, I've highlighted just various words that really call out to us and indicate to us what kind of text this is about. So first of all, the, the word mountain. Really, really important things happened on high places, or mountains in the, gospel of, in the gospel of Matthew. So in chapter 4, Jesus is taken to a high place and shown all the places in the world as he's tempted by Satan, and he defeats Satan. And then in chapter 5, Jesus ascends to a mountain where he gives his inaugural sermon to the crowds and to his disciples, the Sermon on the Mount, teaching them about what life ought to look like as a disciple. In chapter 17, Jesus goes on a mountain and he again heals people, the crowds that come to him, and then he feeds them, the multitudes. And then... And then now our text. Actually, just before our text, he also goes onto the mountain and he's transfigured before Peter, James, and John. Remember that? And he's showing his true glory to his disciples. And then our text, at the end of the gospel, he goes to a mountain and he gives this commission, he gives this command to his disciples. And notice, too, this little word, all, in this passage. All authority, he says, has been given to me. Go to all the nations, all that have commanded you, and always to the end of the age. All, 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 all. And then the scope of this, in terms of the geography, the place, the location, heaven and on earth, mean every place, everywhere, right? So the scope of this command is absolutely comprehensive. It's universal. And it comes right at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. After he's resurrected, this is his only appearance to his disciples. He goes to them, and he gives them this commission. To Matthew, the author of this Gospel, this is not just one more episode in the life of Jesus not just one more story. This is actually where the entire Gospel of Matthew has been going from the very beginning, and Matthew just goes out on a bang. 
This is how it ends. He's proclaiming his authority and he's giving this commission to his disciples. And notice the word, especially, make disciples. And this word actually, in most of the New Testament, is a noun, a disciple, referring to the 12 disciples or perhaps the hundreds of disciples around Jesus beyond the 12. But in Matthew, and one time in Acts, in Matthew, it's actually a verb here. It's pointing to how active this discipleship is. He's asking his disciples to make disciples, to disciple others. So Matthew wants to emphasize this point. The climax of Jesus' ministry is to make disciples. In fact, the climax of Jesus' ministry is to make disciples who make disciples. And so I repeat, the ultimate goal of the Christian life is all about discipleship to Jesus. And I want to emphasize, this is not a suggestion. This is not a wish. This is not conditional upon something else. In terms of grammatical categories, this is an imperative. That means it is a command. He's saying, go. Go and make disciples. It is an imperative. So you could say it is a fundamental calling of every disciple, of every believer, according to Matthew, to go and make disciples of the whole world. The fundamental calling, you could say, of the church is to go and make disciples of the world. So, if we are not fulfilling this calling, then I think something fundamentally is missing from our Christian lives. Something fundamentally is missing from our church if we are not fulfilling this command and this calling. Now, if you, like me, are beginning to feel the weight and the burden of that command, I don't think that is how Jesus intended for it to be heard. That's not how he intended for it to be experienced, and neither does the Gospel of Matthew intends for us to experience it that way. And let me talk about that for a second. Because this command is not found on its own, is it? It's actually sandwiched between two different things. It's sandwiched between a statement and indicative in grammatical terms, and then a promise. So there is a command that's black and white, and that will not change. It's inescapable. It's there. The command is there, but it is not there alone. It is there following a statement, and is there preceding a promise. So let's look at that. What is this statement? What is this indicative? Well, it is this. I'll read it to you. All authority... All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. And I'll read that again. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, says Jesus. So there is no qualifications here. It's all authority everywhere in the entire cosmos. That is quite a claim, isn't it? Especially if you think about the first century church, 
the community of the gospel of Matthew. I mean, we, we, today we can think about the world in smaller terms and so forth because of our understanding of how the world works and our place in it and technology and advancement. But in Matthew's day and in Jesus' day, think about it from their perspective. This is quite an audacious claim. This is small religious sect from within Judaism which had experienced the Messiah and then proclaimed that this Messiah was a true Messiah of Israel, living within the ancient Roman Empire. They claimed that Jesus had all authority in heaven and on earth. This small religious sect in the first century believed that Jesus had all authority everywhere given to him. That means he is above the Roman emperor, he's above Jerusalem, above Athens and Cairo and Alexandria. All authority has been given to Jesus. This is the, the, the conviction that the early church held. And so, I mean, we would think about it in our terms, New York, London, Geneva, Toronto, all authority, everyone is subject to Jesus. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. All peoples, all cultures, all authorities everywhere. Therefore, he says, therefore go. So it flows out of this indicative, this statement of fact of who Jesus is and what he represents. All the power and authority has been given to him, so our command flows out of that reality. Okay? Second, notice what follows the command. It is a promise. It's a promise as we obey his command that his presence is with us, that he goes with us wherever we are fulfilling and obedient to his command. He is there with us. And so there is this promise that even to the end of the age that he is going to be with his church as we go forth and do this, this thing which he has commanded us to do to make disciples, to disciple others, to teach others about who Jesus is. He will never leave us. So it might seem like a daunting task and probably in the first century it would have seemed a much more daunting task than it is today. I feel like today, you know, the world is smaller and we have much more quicker, faster communication and ability to reach others. So today, I don't think the task is unreachable as it probably did seem in the first century. But I think it only is daunting and only seems impossible if we forget that this promise or this command flows from an indicative. It flows from a statement of fact, and then with it is accompanied this promise. Right? So I just, in a few uh, words here, the origination of this command is Jesus' authority. The vocation, the call is to disciple. The destination is the whole world, and the motivation, the motivation the promise is Christ's presence with us. 
Now, I also mentioned that I wanted to talk about discipleship and growth. Now, that reading from Philippians, I wanted to really couple the, the notion of discipleship with growth because sometimes I think we have this understanding that discipleship is just for new believers. Discipleship is just for people who have just come to the Lord Jesus. But that text, Philippians chapter 3, was Paul writing towards the end of his life. And what's he writing? That he has not attained it yet. What's he talking about? This upward call of God towards Christ Jesus. So he's saying that he has not yet attained it. And I love how he ends. Let those of us who are mature think this way, and if anything you think otherwise, well, God will make that clear to you too, right? If you don't, you don't agree with me, well, God will convince you himself. But the, the point is that, that I believe all of us are on this discipleship journey. We're all on this upward call of God towards Christ Jesus. No matter where we are in our lives, it's about following this master, this Lord, this teacher, becoming more and more like him. Now, I want to move into application for uh, this next part of the message. And I uh, start with this illustration. And one of the things I like to do is um, I play sports. And one of the sports I like to play is badminton. And I remember when I first learned to play badminton in junior high school, uh, my friend and I decided to try out for the school team. And uh, I'd only picked up the badminton rack a couple of times before that. And I remember it was grade eight. And we were just you know, hitting it around. And I remember diving all over the court and stuff like that. And somehow I made the team. Well, our coach was a social studies coach. And he was not a badminton expert. And so he didn't know all that much about badminton. And the reason I made the team was not so much because I was so good as much as just nobody really tried out for badminton at our school. <laughs> and I'm not being modest because when we started playing other schools, it became very clear that other teams from other schools were really good and were coached properly, and we would get slaughtered. We'd just get destroyed. Well... Um, I didn't play badminton for a long time after that. After high school, I, I played in, into my high school years, just, just trying to learn on my own and, and picking up the racket and so forth. But I didn't play for a long time, and then it wasn't until I was like about 34, 35, and I realized I really need to become more active physically again, that I picked up a badminton racket, and I visited my community center nearby, and I started to play badminton again. And... I, I improved quite a bit in the first few weeks, but then I noticed that I hit this plateau. I just couldn't get any better, and I couldn't make certain shots, and whenever I got to the, the shuttle, I would be late. I couldn't get there as fast as other people. And so I was thinking, you know, how can I improve in my skills? And someone invited me into a badminton coaching group at that point, and there were a couple of guys who were from the national team in Taiwan who came here to Richmond, to Vancouver, and were starting this uh, group, um, group badminton lessons. And I enjoyed that, and I was invited into it. And I go, sure, why not? You know, it'll be fun. Well, it wasn't that much fun. <laughs> he trained us really hard. He worked us really hard. But it was good. It was good because I learned, actually, how to play properly. I had to actually change my grip, and my stance was, you know, I had to change my stance and how I got ready, how I even just stood on the, on the court. I had to refine all of those things. 
And at first, it, was, it made my game worse because I had to unlearn all of my bad habits. But then I improved, and I became to really appreciate how you actually play the sport of badminton, and it became better and better. But that takes coaching, doesn't it? Right, Wayne? <laughs> it takes coaching, teaching. And the most I learned, I mean, I learned the most when that coach could look at me and tell me what I was doing right and what I was doing wrong. And then I could correct myself. Now, if badminton, a sport, is like that, how much more the Christian life? or any skill is like that, how much more the Christian life, which is infinitely more complex and more challenging and more difficult as we navigate life and spirituality in this world. How do we grow? How do we become mature? Well, how did Jesus do it? He didn't just stand on a mountain and teach, although he did do that. He walked with his disciples. Twelve of them he chose, he selected. And three of them he walked even closer with to show them what life with him was like, to try to help them understand what being a disciple was all about. That's how Jesus did it. How will it work today? How will it work today? Well, I think in lots of ways, it'll look very similar to how it happened back then. Why? Because it's about relationships. It's all relational, isn't it? Ultimately, it's to become like Jesus, but the way we do it really is, is through relating to one another. And the, I think the closer we can get to one another in these discipling relationships, the easier it can become for us to become more and more mature and like Jesus. Uh, let me share another story with you. This story comes from the time when I took that leave from ministry I shared with you a couple of weeks ago. And uh, one of the things I mentioned to you was that I entered into this ministry called Living Waters. Well, I also began a, a journey with a spiritual director at that time. And that was one of the things that was very helpful, speaking into my life and thinking and praying through uh, my life and the things that I was going through. Another thing that was really helpful for me was that I began walking with this older brother um, who was praying for me and supporting me and meeting me and encouraging me at that time. But what's common to all of these was that I was able to be walking with others very closely, able to be authentic and honest and receive feedback from others in a very kind of one-to-one, um, personal way. And these brothers and sister, they helped carry my burden during that time. They helped encourage me during that time. They helped to show Jesus' mercy for me, his grace for me, his love for me, and show me how God wanted to interact with me. They knew God in ways that I didn't know that well during that time. 
And so they're able to speak into my life and help me carry my burden. And that, I think, is what discipleship is all about. How do we discern what is maturity in the Christian life? Well, how do we discern and think about how, what maturity looked like in Jesus' life? What was the ultimate thing he did for his disciples and for all of us? He died. He carried the cross for them, right? I think also that is the mark of maturity in discipleship for us as well. The cross. How much of the cross are we able to carry for each other? Not just when people are beginning in discipleship and beginning in terms of their relationship with Jesus, but all throughout life. How much of each other's burdens are we able to carry? And sometimes we'll be entering into seasons where we need a lot more of our brothers and sisters to carry that burden for us. But I believe that all of us can have that privilege of being walked with and learning from, being mentored from others. In this season of my life, as I'm kind of entering into this new role at Granville, I'm reaching out to seasoned pastors to ask them, you know, how can I learn? How can I grow? Continue to be a disciple of Jesus, continue to grow. I think all of us can learn no matter what stage of life we are at. And I think one of the beautiful things about Granville is that there's so many different generations here. You know, older people with middle-aged people, with younger adults, with teenagers, with, with children. So many opportunities for walking alongside each other, learning from each other, discipling one another, being discipled by each other. Isn't it? Isn't that one of the beauties of a multi-generational community? I think so. So what will it look like today? Like I said, I think it won't look so much different than in Jesus' day. So I have this Venn diagram, these three different circles. We have the Sunday gathering, of course, when we worship together corporately. We gather together and celebrate. We honor and we worship Jesus. And hopefully there are um, sort of medium-sized, smaller-sized smaller groups where we can gather together, we can learn, we can pray, we can eat together, share together, just like the early church. And then hopefully there'll be these one-on-one, one-on-two, one-on-three types of relationships as well where we can walk alongside each other, no matter what stage of life you are at. But perhaps especially in those seasons of life when we're really, really needing to lean on one another. I think, though, this third category may be the most difficult, most challenging area for churches to grow in because it's one of the least visible, right? We can see what happens on a Sunday here on the stage. We can see if we've been practicing or people have been preparing because it's very visible. You can see it happening. Community groups, too, or life groups, too. If you stop meeting, you'll see that. But if people stop discipling each other, you don't see it right away, do you? But yet, it is one of the most important parts, if not the most important part of the Christian life, that we grow into maturity, into the full maturity of who Jesus was, to look more and more like him. It's my prayer that 
authenticity, community, and discipleship will all happen, all happen in conjunction here at Granville Chapel, that we can cultivate these values as a church and as individuals, that we're not afraid of truth. We will, we will be open about ourselves and authentic as we pursue Jesus. Authenticity, right? That we can do it together, we can share together, and we can celebrate together. We can enjoy each other's fellowship in Christ together, supporting one another in community. There'll be lots of opportunities to do that. And I pray that we will form these, these relationships of true depth where we can walk alongside a brother or a sister, that we'll look for brothers and sisters who may be a little bit further along the Christian journey than us, and we'll say, I, I see Jesus in them, and I want to be like them. And maybe if we're a little further along, we can look around at people around us and say, hey, I, I feel called. This, Jesus is putting this person on my heart. I feel called to walk alongside this brother or this sister as they're growing and encourage them perhaps in special ways. It's my prayer that all three of these things and others, of course, will continue to happen at Granville Chapel, that we'll be committed to this kind of a walking with each other in discipleship as we grow towards him.